had the funny thought that you came in spring and you're leaving in winter. <laughs> Those of you who are leaving <laughs> tomorrow. <laughs> we don't know what's going to happen to the rest of you <laughs> who are staying for the Vipassana retreat. So I want to talk tonight about <clears throat> the other three qualities, the other three Brahma-viharas that are so often associated with the teaching of metta or loving-kindness. Once again, the word Brahma means celestial or supreme. One translation of it is best. And vihara means dwelling or abiding or home. So that taken together, these four qualities form our best home. And like any home, it's not a place we dwell always. Sometimes we leave home, we go out, we go away. But we also know what it feels like when we get back home. That's the place where we don't have to pretend to be somebody else, where we can be at ease, we can be most natural, safest, have the greatest sense of integrity, being who we truly are. That's our best home. These four qualities form our best home. That is metta or loving kindness itself, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. When I first heard this, or I first began studying this, I was a little bit puzzled. I thought, what's equanimity doing in there? The other three, I could, I could see their connection or, or sense their connection. But what was that equanimity for? It seemed so very different. But as I began to explore further, I began to understand that equanimity, which is the voice of wisdom, its balance of mind, the articulation of wisdom, is actually infused throughout all of the others. And in fact, all of them reinforce one another and support one another. We've talked a lot, certainly, about metta, its nature, its opposite, its near enemy of attachment. And that same model can apply throughout the other three Compassion is the translation of the Pali word karuna, and it means the trembling or the quivering of the heart in response to pain or suffering. Like all of these states, it's quite difficult to discern just what it is. It is so easy to get confused or, or to misconstrue what's going on in some way. One of my favorite images of compassion Actually, one of my favorite um, inspirations for compassion is, is His Holiness the Dalai Lama. And one of my favorite images of him comes from uh, about four years ago when he came to New York City. Some of you were probably there, in fact, where he gave teachings in a theater, a rented theater, for about three days. And then um, there was a big public talk in Central Park scheduled for the fourth day. And there was no registration, there was no fee, there was no knowing how many people were going to show up. And 
a very good friend of ours actually organized the whole thing, and I knew it was her deep, heartfelt desire that many people come and that it be, it be really open and, and have that sense of just abundance of people. But the day before he was scheduled to speak, it poured rain. It just rained and rained and rained. And my heart sank. I thought, oh, no, you know, no one's going to show up. But the next day was clear. So we made our way over to the park, and I couldn't see anything. I could just hear the sound of Tibetan chanting going on in the distance. <coughs> I followed the sound of the, of the chants. And finally, I turned a corner, and there was just an ocean of people. It's like everywhere the eye could land, there were people. The unofficial estimates for the numbers were about 250,000 people. We sat in a, a very unusual kind of silence, I think, for that many people coming together. And finally he was speaking. He began with a statement I found quite remarkable. He said, you know, from a certain point of view, I haven't had such an easy life. He said I had to assume power, temporal power, when I was 16. I had to flee into exile in my early 20s. I've had to daily try to make effort to keep an exiled culture intact. I've had to daily hear about the, the torture and, and the death and the imprisonment going on inside Tibet. He said, it hasn't been such an easy life. And then he said, but I'm pretty happy. <clears throat> and just like that, I'm pretty happy. <laughs> and, of course, that's what one sees in him. You know, he doesn't seem really morose and kind of, you know, heavily burdened. Um, he's pretty happy. <laughs> and it's an unusual meaning of happiness. You know, it's not happy-go-lucky or happy in the sense of kind of stupid, you know, and overlooking the the troubles and the pain and the difficulty of the world, clearly. <clears throat> he went on to say, the reason that I'm pretty happy, even though it hasn't been such an easy life, is because of the force of compassion. He said, compassion makes me feel at one with everybody. And it's that sense of, of unity, of oneness, of not being so alone, so cut off, that is the happiness even in the face of pain. We, of course, have a very different kind of conditioning here in the West where suffering is something that isolates us, that keeps us apart, that we're ashamed of, that we're afraid of. And so it's very difficult to make the bridge to a state of genuine compassion. It was so amazing sitting there in that crowd of maybe 250,000 people because an awful lot of us, I'm sure, could have said, it hasn't been such an easy life. And not that many of us could have said, but I'm pretty happy. There's something about compassion that is different from our ordinary reaction to pain. First of all, it is an open acknowledgement of the pain. But there is some joining. There is some kind of connection that makes the difference. And the near enemy, as Joseph spoke about last night, is, is this state that is sometimes translated as sorrow or grief. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean the kind of grief 
we know in, in conventional Western psychological terms, but it really does mean some state of being kind of broken by the suffering that we see. So in effect, we have no energy to try to make a difference, to join, to care, because we're just depleted. And the, the sort of secondary or almost sneaky kind of consequence of that is that our own pain, our own distress, our own dismay, perhaps our own guilt, um, take center stage. So the suffering we're bearing witness to actually becomes less important than our own feeling of being overcome. And so once again, we, we don't have the, the energy <coughs> to try to help. I use this example in um, one of the groups I did today. Uh, I talked about when Joseph and I first went to the Soviet Union to teach, which at that point was the teaching of meditation was an illegal activity. And um, we actually went as part of a tour group and then basically never went to see anything much, you know. We'd sneak off and go off to somebody's living room and practice together. And we had a translator going around with us. And I spoke many times about compassion, and very often I would just feel this really kind of funny energy in the room. And, and finally I sat down with the translator and I said, when I say compassion, what do you say? And, and she described very kind of floridly this state where she said, oh, you're just destroyed by the suffering that you see and your heart is shattered into a million pieces. And <laughs> it's like, Someone has taken a a giant stake and driven it through your heart. That's compassion. And I thought, well, no wonder, you know, there's this really funny feeling in the room, you know. But even though that's kind of extreme, we all can, can get confused. We can get into that state. But we'll end up depleted. We'll end up just drained. We need, in fact the strength of equanimity, of some kind of balance to understand how we can be present even when we can't make it all better, even when we can't make the pain go away. It's equanimity or balance of mind that says, okay, I can be there, even though it's been revealed that I'm not in control of the unfolding of the universe even though I can't fix it. We find our way through compassion to that place of presence and wholehearted presence and that very special kind of happiness even as we are looking at something very painful. On my way in here, I stopped and looked at the, the Kuan Yin statue that's in the walking room just behind. And, I, you know, Kuan Yin is a, like a, a goddess, a bodhisattva of compassion in the Chinese tradition. And I remember when it arrived, somebody who'd sat a retreat here um, told us they were sending us a gift. And I remember when the crate came, and I was here, and we were in the front lobby in the hallway, and, like, with some amount of tools and implements, managed to open this crate and lifted her out. And we put her on one of the benches that, that's just, you know, by the front door. 
And we were all like mesmerized. Nobody could move. And we just sat there. We sat down on the ground and just started sitting. Because here was this beautiful symbol of compassion with that crack, you know, coming down. And it, it was so evocative of the state of compassion where something is broken, but we're not broken all the way through. Because if we're broken all the way through, we can't do anything. We can't even try to make a difference. We're just overcome. And yet there's no armor. There's no guardedness. There's no pretending. That's what's broken open. So that we're touched, we're vulnerable, we're affected, and we're not destroyed. Look at her on your way out. That's the state of compassion. You can see, you know, when the Dalai Lama says, I've never met anyone I consider a stranger, what the, the underlying joy is of that state, even as you encounter states of suffering. And that certainly is the feeling, the unboundedness that one senses in him. You don't really get the sense that he's kind of impatiently waiting for you to leave so he can talk to someone more interesting or, you know, that he, he is just really glancing at his watch to get off to watch television or something like that, you know. <laughs> there is such a, a profound quality of connection that can come especially when we realize how vulnerable we all are to change, to loss, to movement. It's in the nature of things. We're not so very different. That's the state of compassion. And the other Brahmavihara, the next Brahmavihara, is almost kind of the energetic opposite of that, and that is sympathetic joy. If compassion reminds us to take the time to look at suffering, not to ignore it, not to deny it. Sympathetic joy reminds us to take the time to look at joy and to be willing to be present and to open to that. The literal meaning of sympathetic joy is joy in the happiness of others. But one of the greatest threats to sympathetic joy is that sense that somehow happiness is like a limited commodity in this world And the more somebody else has, the less there's going to be for us. And so we feel threatened, we feel frightened in the face of someone else's success or good fortune. So to begin with, we have to have a sense of inner abundance. All generosity, and this is one practice of generosity, sympathetic joy, just as as metta is, all generosity comes from a sense of inner abundance. We have to know we have something to give. It's that same feeling, and I was talking about much earlier in the course when people have said to me that they've chosen the Dalai Lama as their benefactor in doing metta, and then their very next thought was, what does he need me for? You know, I don't count. I couldn't possibly have something of value to contribute. That's like the black hole in which generosity disappears. We need some sense of inner abundance. We have something to give, something to contribute. 
We see this in the material realm as well, where you know, I often talk about my time in Burma, and I know many of you, I'm sure, in, in this country or in other cultures have had the, the same kind of experience, where um, you know, in Burma, when you go to practice meditation, in many facilities, you don't pay anything. You don't even pay for room and board because the people themselves will come and provide everything that you need. They're so respectful of the fact that you're meditating um, that every morsel of food you eat is given in some way. It's sort of like the meal dana thing, you know, we have here. Um, They will come and watch you eat. And Burma is one of the poorest countries in the world. And it would be so amazing, you know, Every single person, sometimes it's a person, sometimes it's a family, sometimes it's a whole village who will come to feed the meditators. Um, And they always offer the best that they can, and sometimes that is really not much. But they come and they watch you eat, and they're radiant with the joy of being able to give something to sustain an activity they hold in such high regard, like meditation. You know, so I'd be there the recipient of all this kind of generosity, sometimes, and then come back here, you know, to the States, not necessarily Barry, but to the States, and there'd be so much. People would have so much, relatively speaking, and sometimes not that inner sense that they could give anything, that they could share anything. And it was so clear that it is an inner sense, that ability to give, whether it's materially or energetically, Spiritually, we need that, that connection. And so the ability to take delight in the happiness of others, which is a practice of generosity, also needs that as a basis to be able to look at the happiness, the joy that we have, to realize that someone else's happiness is not going to take anything away from us. In fact, it is our own happiness that can sustain us. And here, too, the Dalai Lama said something really um, kind of funny. He said, um, it only makes sense to develop happiness in the happiness of others because then you increase your own chances of happiness six billion to one. He said, those are very good odds. (laughs) And I thought, you know, that makes sense. It's like, What do you do some Saturday night when you want to be happy? You don't have to get dressed. You don't have to go out. You don't have to spend any money. All you have to do is think of someone else who's happy, and you get happy. And that's enough. Those are very good odds. You know, we can spend so much time feeling we don't have enough, and we are not enough, and and dreading looking at the person who's enjoying themselves, but really, is their losing everything going to make us any happier? Is it going to add anything to our lives? And how likely is it that their happiness will sustain forever? Are they not too vulnerable to the law of change, just as we are? Do we really begrudge them that kind of joy? I think we all know the state of sympathetic joy because we know what it's like to be a recipient of it or not. You know how beautiful it is when something really good happens for you and someone is really, genuinely happy for you? 
and what a gift that feels like, how, how filled we get with their joy for us. Whereas other people, I mean, they may smile, you know, and they may say, oh, congratulations, but you know they are dying inside. <laughs> and it feels really terrible, you know, that your happiness has made this person miserable. It's terrible. I have many funny, sympathetic joy stories. Um, <clears throat> like last winter and the winter before, well, last winter, I cleverly spent most of the winter in California, <laughs> in L.A. And like this winter, it was horribly cold here. It was, I would call home and they would say, oh, it's minus 10, it's minus 15, and there I was in L.A., you know, it was 85. Um, at one point, I had to call a doctor's office here in the area to change an appointment that I had set up for some time. And I was talking to the receptionist, and and she kept saying, I can't hear you, I can't hear you. And finally I said, well, maybe you can't hear me because I'm in Malibu, right on the beach. And the sound of the ocean, you know, the waves, is just like pounding out my voice. It's drowning out my voice. And she said, is that true? Are you in Malibu? And I said, yeah. And she said, I hate you. <laughs> she said, I'm not changing your appointment. No. Is that why you want to change your appointment so you can stay in Malibu even longer? No. You know, um, I mean, of course she was joking, one presumes, but... Actually, I have another Malibu story, which is... Um, uh, the year before, maybe it was, um, or two years before that, in Malibu, there were some incredible torrential rains, and it just rained and rained and rained and rained. And uh, my friend, whose house is right on the beach, had all these troubles because of the rain. You know, something leaked, and like a roof leaked somewhere, and then there was this um, bevy of ants that appeared because of the, the moisture. And just one thing after another went wrong. And she has a friend who's a producer for a national news show on television. And one day the, the friend called and said, would you mind if I came by with a crew and filled like all, filmed all the trouble that's going on in your house? And, and my friend said, well, no, I don't mind, but why in the world would anyone be interested, like in my aunts and things like that, on a national news show? And the woman said, all around the country, people get very excited when something goes wrong in Malibu. <laughs> so, I think, this is how we are, you know? But we don't have to be. This is the actual practice of sympathetic joy, of actively taking delight in the happiness of others instead of falling sway to that voice, which so often, so commonly arises looking at someone's good fortune and wishing it would go away. The voice may come, but we can let it go at the same time. To actually develop this capacity is to increase our happiness. And we need some balance of mind, we need some equanimity here too, to remember that life is as it is with pleasure and pain and gain and loss and praise and blame and fame and disrepute, and no one's life is just going up and up and up and up. 
We all know that, that the most joyous situation can turn on a dime. That life is unstable, it's insecure. We share that. We can help each other. We don't have to compete with each other for the happiness that exists. We can use equanimity and sympathetic joy to establish our priorities. What do we really care about? Can we be steadfast with that? Isn't it more important to wish happiness for someone else than to decide how they should live? And many times people say in sympathetic joy, well, why should I be developing joy when, you know, they made all their money through illicit means and hurt all these people and, you know, surely I shouldn't be developing sympathetic joy for that. And that's true. You needn't, you know, it's not, it's not very wise. But sometimes it's not a question of somebody really actively hurting somebody else. It's simply a question of our opinion of how someone else should be living and our resentment that they're happy despite our, our best judgment of, of how they should be and their betrayal of that. And once I had a friend, a young friend, who um, had gone to India and uh, had come back. He'd met a teacher while he was there um, that he had a very powerful experience with. And he came back and he told me one day that he wanted to bring his father back to India to meet this teacher and kind of experience the the scene around him, and he asked me what I thought. And I said, you know, I think that's a terrible idea. It's going to be really, really hot, and there are going to be giant bugs, and he's likely to get sick, and the food is awful in that particular place. And, you know, let's face it, the scene around the teacher is very strange. You know, it's going to be really strange for him, and it's, it's going to be very alienating, and, you know, I think it's a really bad idea. And... He did it anyway, and his father had the best time of his entire life. (laughs) You know, he absolutely loved it. He became a disciple of the teacher. He is now teaching in the teacher's tradition. You know, it was like the, the most extraordinary experience of his life. So when they first came back from India and told me, I thought about all the advice I'd given, and I thought, oh, well, (laughs) look at that. I was really wrong. And then there is that moment. Do you care most about being wrong, having been wrong, or do you care most about the fact that they were happy and things had gone well? You know, can we let go of our need to be right, of our need to be in control, to dominate other people's choices, and just simply be happy for them? It's really a very powerful practice. And then the last... Brahma-vihara is equanimity itself, balance of mind. The near enemy of equanimity is indifference, and so it doesn't mean indifference. It doesn't mean withdrawal. It doesn't mean pulling back. It doesn't mean not caring. It means being wise. The balance comes from wisdom, from seeing how inevitable, in fact, those vicissitudes of life are which I just quoted earlier, pleasure and pain, gain and loss, and praise and blame, and fame and disrepute. The Buddha said, that's the very fabric of life. That is life. That's how things are. That no matter what, 
we're going to go through those changes. We can and do try to make a difference. And we also need to know how to let go, to let things unfold, to let nature take its course. We have to understand also kind of the mystery of our our effort, of our compassion, of our generosity, of our loving kindness. The energy which we offer, which we add to a certain situation, may be planting a seed that is going to take a long time to bear fruit. The action that we perform may ripple out in ways that we can't even fathom. We just don't know, because we live in a very interconnected universe. You know, an exercise I often do in in teaching loving-kindness and sitting in front of a room full of people is I say, okay, how many of us are sitting here together right now? You know, if we considered not just those of us who are sitting here physically, but what if we considered everyone we thought about today as a strong influence? What if they were here too? And everyone who in some way had done something in our lives so that we ended up here together in this moment in time. Everyone who'd given us a book or read us a poem or told us about their meditation. What if they were all here too? And everyone who'd really challenged us and hurt us not just annoyed us in petty ways, but really brought us to an edge so that we said, I've got to change, or I've got to find a new kind of happiness. So what if they were all here too? And the people who made the clothing that we're wearing and grew the food that we ate today, and the people who built this building, and many links and and connections and relationships and influences That's the reality of this moment. That we're not alone. We live as part of this vast web of interconnection. Sometimes I think, would I be here if I had not gone to Buffalo, New York, to school, where I first encountered Buddhist teaching? I don't know. There's a thought. All of the waves and waves and waves of of conditions, the confluence of all of this coming together. That's our life in every moment, in every encounter. So everything we do, every action we take, ripples out along these waves of interconnection. We don't know where it will land, what it will do. And many of you have heard me say how in um, the first month after we moved here, Uh, We moved in on Valentine's Day of 1976. We received two letters that were remarkable for how they were addressed. The first, instead of being addressed to the Insight Meditation Society, was addressed to the Instant Meditation Society. (laughs) And for a long time, that was really my favorite. I used to look at the envelope and think, what were they thinking, you know? But of course, that is a kind of great 
cultural dictate that everything worthwhile should happen instantly. And the second, which is by far my current favorite, instead of being addressed to the Insight Meditation Society, was addressed to the Hindsight Meditation (laughs) Society. Mm. And the reason that it's my favorite is because I really believe in it. I think about how many times in my meditative life, my spiritual life, where I've practiced and practiced, (coughs) and it just felt like completely dreary, like it was going nowhere, nothing was happening. Only to look back later, in hindsight, and say, isn't that interesting? That was really important. I never would have guessed. But that period was actually providing a foundation for this other thing to happen. Or that really hurt. That was a really terrible period in terms of its pain. But that was important because that also helped me be ready for this next thing that happened. Is the wisdom of hindsight. And it's very much that way in terms of action. I mean, how many times have you tried to help a friend or given somebody something like a book or something like that and, and had them not really respond, only to have them say later. I mean, I certainly have had that experience many times. People say to me, you know, you said that thing to me or you gave me that book and it didn't mean anything to me. But then this other thing happened. I lost my job or my mother got sick or um, I moved to this new place and had all these new opportunities and I picked up the book again. And it was amazing. It was just what I needed to read. You know, it's really like, in hindsight, when we're lucky, we get to hear that what we've done has had some effect. Not in the moment, maybe, or not in the the way that we've, you know, chosen for it to have, but we've planted a seed. And that, in fact, is the nature of life. It's confluence of conditions coming together when it's time. So we need equanimity, we need balance to have that big perspective about what we do and the difference that we we can make, the effect of our action. To realize that life is as it is, with ups and downs and changes, and no matter how hard we do metta, that's not going to be different. But that understanding doesn't have to defeat our metta or have us give up or turn us to apathy or resignation. In fact, it empowers metta. It allows metta to be metta and not attachment when we have equanimity. It said that equanimity endows loving kindness with patience. Instead of, you know, be happy by tonight because I've really, you know, spent all day, you know, wishing you well, we can be at ease, you know. It's a big life. We can let go and at the same time be very, very present in our caring because we have that kind of balance, that kind of wisdom. So that equanimity endows compassion with courage because it's not easy to really look at suffering and know you can't make it go away and not turn away. To be able to really be there and open and care and unite 
and not let our own feeling of helplessness rule the day takes a lot of balance of mind. It takes a lot of equanimity and wisdom to see we're not in control. Things are going to be as they are, and we're going to do our best. And they say that for sympathetic joy even to exist beyond the very tiny little circle that we might feel comfortable wishing well in their happiness, we need a lot of balance of mind. We need that kind of perspective about the nature of life, about the ups and downs, about change, about the truth of things, so that we can see things in perspective rather than caught in the kind of tunnel vision of our own bad feeling about somebody doing well. I just had the thought of when I was doing sympathetic joy practice in Burma um, with Saito Upandita, he gave me a kind of um, exercise one day or test, sort of. He said, okay, imagine you're, you're in a room and the room is filled with people that you admire and you want them to really like you, except there's one other person in the room and that's your difficult person person you don't really get along with that well. And all the people that you admire are heaping praise upon your difficult person in your presence. He said, now how do you feel? (laughs) That was the sympathetic joy test. You know, but really, are there that many people that we want to have just suffer and suffer and suffer and suffer when we pay attention? Probably not. So equanimity becomes the basis for the boundless nature of these states. We talk about taking a practice of loving kindness into action, into activity in the world. Here too, equanimity plays a big role. You can say from the point of view of the Buddhist teaching that everything we do, every action we take, everything we say can be seen as having three aspects. The first is the intention or the motivation that is sparking, that is giving rise to the action. And this is of of critical importance for us to understand from this point of view because it's the intention, it's the motivation where the energy of the action is. It's not in a physical movement. Like if I were giving one of you, finally I have a book when I use this example, if I were giving one of you a book, you know, all anybody would see is my hand reaching down and moving an object forward. But that's not where the energy is. The actual energy of the action is in the heart space or the mind space arising within me, having me do it. You know, maybe I'm making that offering to you because I like you and I want you to have the book. Or maybe I'm doing it because you have a book I want and I think, well, hey, you know, I'll give you this book and maybe you'll give me that one or Or maybe it's because I am in front of a room full of people and I want everyone to think I'm very generous. And None of that is in my hand moving down and moving it forward. It's happening within. 
my heart-mind. That's the intention. Classically, we'd say that's where the karmic seed is because that's where the energy is. That's what differentiates the very same movement from the very same movement. So knowing our intention is, is based on mindfulness, on awareness, on truthfulness. And the transformation of our intention is very much the arena of the first three Brahma-viharas, of loving-kindness and compassion and sympathetic joy. So that if we have made our home, so to speak, in the field of intention that is fear, if we've cultivated fear, we've practiced fear, and in effect, fear has been our meditation, and we more commonly come from a place of fear than anything else, and we do a practice like loving-kindness, then that will actually be replaced. It will be supplanted so that our field of intention, of motivation, will be more likely one of connection, of care, of reaching out, (coughs) of loving-kindness, of friendship. That will be the the basis from which we move, we act, we speak. Just naturally, not through great deliberation. You know, here again with the Dalai Lama, you know, I don't get the feeling ever that, you know, he's kind of sitting there impatiently talking to somebody and thinking, well, you know, I'd really like to get rid of this one, but I am the Dalai Lama, so, you know, I better really kind of try to be pleasant, you know, and act like I care, you know, because after all, what else should a Dalai Lama do but act like they care, you know? It's not sort of pretentious or, or playing a role or putting something on. This is what happens naturally through the development of these qualities without great deliberation, forethought, self-consciousness. Well, I don't really want to, but I better, you know. It's not like that. In fact, one of my friends, when um, the Dalai Lama was given the Nobel Peace Prize, said that, Giving the Dalai Lama a peace prize is like giving Mother Nature an art award. (laughs) You know, that's how it should be. It should be so much a part of us. And it will be so much a part of us. That's the, the effect of this kind of practice. So the field of motivation that we are coming from, that we're acting from, will be transformed genuinely and inevitably to one of connection rather than fear and anger. So that's kind of the purview of, of those practices, is that, is that area of intention or motivation. And then the second aspect of action is the skillfulness or lack of skillfulness with which we're acting. <coughs> and here we have a question of, <coughs> kind of mindfulness in a bigger context. You know, we have to... Listen, we have to pay attention. We have to see where we are. We have to learn from our mistakes. We have to be able to accept feedback. We have to get more skillful. You know, going back to the example of the book, if I have a a beautiful, genuinely beautiful motivation for giving you the book, I might pause for a moment and will think, hey, you know, there's only one book. A lot of people in this room 
Maybe this is the kind of thing best done privately. Maybe I should take you aside. Maybe I should try to do it in this way. It's like our best guess of what is most skillful, taking into account everything we can to discern. There's a very important um, distinction between intention and skillfulness of action. I talked about this with one of my groups today too. Many times people fear, well, if I develop a loving heart, if I really work on being a more compassionate person, then I am kind of (coughs) consigned to this very narrow little area of action. That's all that loving people can do. You know, if somebody were to hurt me, I'd have to smile and just kind of stand there and take it. If I see someone else being harmed, I just have to stand there and say, well, I'm being loving. You know, whatever our image is of that very narrow little band of action, kind of passive, sort of wimpy, you know, not doing much. It can be extremely narrow and tight. But the intention is one thing. Our best discernment about what's most skillful is something else. And there can be, in fact, a wide range of activity born out of a loving heart. It's the best that we can do. The great Indian saint named Curly Baba um, was very famous for a saying of his, you should never throw anyone out of your heart. And my friend and colleague, Sylvia Borstein, had this kind of addendum to that. She said, you should never throw anyone out of your heart. You may throw them out of your life, but never throw them out of your heart. And there it is. You know, within, in that field of motivation, that recognition of our oneness, that genuine care, we never throw them out of our heart. Whether we let them into our life, that's another question, based on wisdom, based on discernment. And then the third aspect of action um, is really the immediate result, especially in terms of praise and blame. And here is the place where equanimity needs to come in very strongly. And maybe I have this beautiful motivation for giving you the book. Maybe I figure it out, you know. I write the card, I wrap the book, I take you aside, I do it privately. I say these 15 words that I've prepared. But on your way in here, you know, you just pulled off a note um, off the bulletin board which said, you know, you just won $15 million in the lottery and you could not care less about this book. And you kind of nod distantly and you smile a little bit and you walk away. And I'm crushed more often than not. I think, I am so stupid. I always choose the wrong book. I always wrap it the wrong way. You know, why do I always do things wrong? But really, what does your reaction in that moment have to do with the quality of my generosity, with the quality of my heart. Nothing. 
But rather than almost like landing our sense of integrity in a knowledge of our motive and the skillfulness of our action, we tend to land it here in the one arena we actually have no control over. Because here we are, a confluence of conditions coming together in every moment outside of our control. And can you imagine saying to somebody, well, something's going to happen at 8 o'clock. So I want you to come into the room. Don't check your messages. Don't check your email. Don't talk to anybody. And don't think about anything. I want you to arrive a completely blank slate. Life isn't like that, is it? We arrive as we arrive anywhere. Born by all these conditions, these influences, these relationships, these connections, these conditions. That's what's going to determine that moment. You know, it's not that, again, it's not that equanimity is indifference. It's not that we don't care. You know, if you hand somebody the book and they kind of nod and they walk away, it hurts. But how much does it hurt? How much do we care? Are we absolutely devastated? Do we denigrate our own action? Or do we have another place to stand to determine our integrity? It's the role of equanimity. It like reminds us of the big picture, that this is outside of our control. There's praise and blame always, everywhere. You know, we first opened the center here. One of the big conversations that we had, um, we had many. Um, one big one was whether we should have the word meta up front. It didn't, we didn't move in with the word meta up front. The place was owned by the Fathers of the Blessed Sacrament, by the Catholic Church, and, and it said Fathers of the Blessed Sacrament up above the doorway, and so here it was February, and we got some poor person to go up in a very tall ladder in the cold and said, why don't you play around with those letters a while and see if you could come up with something that means something about us. So they came up with meta. And then we had all these discussions, you know, should we keep it, should we take it down, it's not an English word, no one knows what it means, you know, that's too weird. But in the end... Um, it stayed, which I'm quite happy about. The reason I like it is because now when people call for directions, you know, like the UPS delivery person, we get to say, well, it's a large brick building with white pillars, and it's got this word up on top, meta. And they say, what does that mean? And we get to say, that means love, or that means loving kindness. So another big debate we had was whether we should have Buddha images around because as we were taught uh, very strongly, you know, in our own practice in, in Asia, um, you did not need to become a Buddhist or call yourself anything in order to, to do this practice. And as they say uh, very often, the Buddha did not teach Buddhism. He taught a way of life. And so we thought, well, should we have them? I mean, they're inspiring and we kind of grew up with them, so to speak, in, in our own practice, and they mean a lot, but on the other hand, you know, and so we went back and forth and back and forth, and finally we decided um, to have Buddha statues, largely, I think, because one of us had a number of Buddha statues that they'd acquired in their time in Asia. So 
there were Buddha images around and in Asia, um, a Buddha image is not an art object. It's really a sacred object and it's treated with a certain decorum because of that. So uh, the common practice is to bow to the to the statue. You're not really bowing to the statue, you're bowing to what it symbolizes about yourself and your potential as a human being to be free. But I remember the very first time uh, that somebody here decided to bow, because at first we just kind of put them around and, and treated them rather casually. The first time that somebody decided to bow, he came in, he bowed, he led the sitting, rang the bell, and by the time he got to the bulletin board, there were notes up there for him. So you know how far away, what is it, 30 seconds, you know? And he pulled off the first note and it said, you know, I was so happy to see you bowing to the Buddha because I have such a large devotional side as well within me and uh, it meant so much to me to see you do that. And then the next note he pulled off the board said, I was so appalled to see you bowing to the Buddha You know, I mean, that kind of practice doesn't have any place here in the West, and why are you importing it? And it, you know, it doesn't mean anything to us. And it's like 30 seconds, praise and blame. There you go. The very same action, born of whatever motive, whatever level of skill. Somebody liked it, somebody else didn't like it. And how often does that happen? So we need to be able to have some equanimity some balance to see, yes, this is the way it is. These things are outside of our control. It's always going to be this way. And we come back. We come back to looking at our intention. We come back to transforming our intention. We come back to learning greater skill in our lives. And we come back to the strength of being able to let go, to let things be as they actually are. So let's sit together for a few minutes.